Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be continuing our chat about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Uh, we talked about him last week, of course, as we talked about last week, this bloke, le- absolutely legendary figure in the history, history of Western music, and he has had a massive influence on music uh, both during and, I mean, well after his lifetime, Steve, even through to the, uh, to the, to the present day. Uh, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, jump back, get across that before starting this one. I mean... Obviously, what's going on with you, mate? Starting a podcast, you know, starting a podcast on a part two episode. Come on, what are you doing? But uh, for those of you who need a, a refresher on what we chatted about last week, here's a quick synopsis of, of Mozart's earlier years to bring everyone back up to speed. Born in uh, 1756, his dad Leopold brought him and his sister up as child prodigy mu- uh, musicians. Uh, both the kids had an incredible amount of talent. Uh, and Leopold took the family on the on the road to show them off. A uh, great big long trip around Europe, went through the German-speaking world, through France, in, even into England at one point. But uh, they failed to find steady employment at a noble or royal court. That's what one of the objectives wasn't just showing off and you know getting a whole lot of exposure. It was also looking looking for that uh, that fat payday there from a royal court. Didn't find that. Had to return back to Salzburg eventually. Um, Leopold then took Mozart in the years that followed around Italy. Uh, where he continued to develop as an incredibly gifted musician, got involved in opera, church music, all that sort of stuff. Uh, very, very talented composer indeed, even as a youngster, as, as a as a um, as a teenager. But still failed to find the position for his son that he was hoping for. Leopold couldn't find uh, a lucrative spot for Mozart, and you know, for, I guess by extension, him and the rest of the family. So they head back to Salzburg. Mozart worked there as an assistant concert master for a few years. But uh, you know, as he grows into his twenties, he's feeling feeling like a big fish in a small pond. And so he left his hometown of Salzburg, travelled again, headed to Paris, uh, fell in love, lost his mum, unfortunately, ups and downs, highs and lows, all sorts of adventures. It's all in, uh, in much greater detail last week, of course. But ultimately, on this trip that uh, landed him in Paris, he ran out of money. He, uh, he, he just couldn't find, again, work at a court continued to elude him no matter what he did. So he headed home to Salzburg very reluctantly, and that's where we left him last week at the age of 23. Now... Throughout all this time, and indeed, you know, more or less for the rest of his entire life, Mozart was composing work after work after work. This bloke wrote, wrote over uh, 600 pieces of music, 
Most of them made up of individual separate movements as well. So just the sheer volume of music that Mozart wrote, is, it's, it is absolutely staggering. Uh, and I'll tell you this, he's not about to bloody slow down either. Uh, I mean, unless I say otherwise, assume that throughout the entire story that we're going to finish today, Mozart is composing constantly. He's just putting out new music all the time. And we'll have a listen to it, to some of it as well. Once again, uh, we'll talk about when and where he wrote it and what was important about it. And I reckon uh, you'll recognize a fair few of the pieces uh, instantly that we're going to get across today. Anyway. Let's get to it. Today, we're going to talk about Mozart's uh, his career after he returned to Salzburg, the, the, the life that he set up for himself in Vienna. He moved over to Vienna uh, shortly after this return to Salzburg after going to Paris and had a lot of success as a composer in, uh, in Vienna, made some very important contacts, uh, developed his musical style, uh, began to perform in earnest as a uh, as a very very famous and obviously gifted uh, uh, soloist, but then also had monumental success with his operas. And even today, uh, Mozart's operas, you know, The Marriage of Figaro, Don Giovanni, The Magic Flute, all still incredibly highly regarded operas. So this bloke definitely knew what he was doing. But of course, his story it's a tragically short one because he did meet an untimely end uh, and died at just the, just 35 years of age. And, uh, you know, his career before he died, there were ups and downs, there were smiles and frowns, highs and lows, as we say, but tragically, any way you slice it, his life did come to a premature end, as we'll get across in the episode. Anyway, let's get to it here. We're going to get underway with the second half of the story of Mozart, uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest composer in history. Let's get to it. Here we go. We're going all the way back now. We're going all the way back, of course, back to 1779. That's where we left Mozart last week, a dejected 23-year-old back in Salzburg after failing to find work in France or other parts of the Holy Roman Empire, the German-speaking world. Now, back in Salzburg, he continued working for the Archbishop of Salzburg. We talked about uh, how he was. He felt kind of stuck working for the Archbishop. It wasn't a particularly large or prestigious court, but still composing constantly, looking uh, and and always on the lookout, always on the hunt for for new ways to advance his career. He wrote a lot of church music at this time. Remember, he travelled around Italy learning how to do that in his youth, and so uh, this church music was very well received. But he had his big breakthrough, huge big breakthrough with an opera that he wrote. And this is going to be a, a recurring theme in the rest of the episode here. Mozart's operas really were tip-top. He wrote an, uh, an opera called Idomeneo, right? And it premiered in Munich in early 1781. And it helped his obviously incredible musical talents gain even more fame, even more recognition. This bloke could write music in all sorts of genres and this, uh, and this opera was a great success. And once, you know, these talents are getting more and more recognition, he really did seem to want to do something with them. Uh, something more than remain in, in Salzburg and in the, in the employ of this archbishop. And so, in March of 1781, right, when the archbishop summoned him to Vienna, Mozart saw this trip as a real opportunity for him. Um, there were there, At the time, there were huge celebrations going on in Vienna for Joseph uh, II, right, the Holy Roman Empire, Empire in, in, uh, in 1780, 1781. He, it, there was a big celebration because he'd taken control of, he was now the ruler of all the Habsburg lands throughout Europe, very, very powerful bloke indeed. And the archbishop was there as part of these celebrations. And he wanted Mozart on hand as his employee in case he needed, I don't know, needed Mozart to write him a bloody emergency piano sonata or something. No idea. Point was, the Archbishop wanted Mozart there, and Mozart, more than happy to head over to Vienna, he saw it as an opportunity to make a connection with the Emperor Joseph II. Here's what he wrote to his dad about this, right? When when he was given the invitation, or the summons, really, not really an invitation, when he was given the summons to, to Vienna as the Archbishop's employee, Mozart wrote to his dad and explained what he was going to do. He said this, <clears throat> My main goal right now is to meet the Emperor in some agreeable fashion. I'm absolutely determined that he should get to know me. I would be so happy if I could whip through my opera for him and then play a fugue or two, for that's what he likes. So, in, in you know, today's terms, 
Mozart was clout chasing, dude. There's no other way to describe it. He was clout chasing. He was ready to leave the Archbishop, you know, well and truly in the rear view. He was hoping to work for the Emperor himself and wanted to impress Emperor Joseph II, you know, with, with his musical ability. And so this meant that when Mozart arrived in Vienna, obviously he's looking for opportunities to make some kind of contact with the Emperor. And he is very pissed off to find exa- you find out exactly how hard that is going to be because the Archbishop wasn't keeping Mozart, uh, you know, he wasn't allowing Mozart to, to rub shoulders with the, the rich and famous and powerful. No, he was keeping him quartered with all the other servants, all of the other Archbishop servants, the valets and, and whoever else. They weren't allowed to dine with the, uh, you know, the rich and powerful people in Vienna. They weren't, they weren't uh, hobnobbing around with the, uh, with these, these nobles and royals. And Mozart was lumped in with them, so he is not happy at all. He's not happy about the situation, but it gets worse because the Archbishop, probably recognizing that Mozart was uh, was on the hunt for a better position, the Archbishop forbade Mozart from performing in front of the Emperor. I mean, a performance like that would have earned Mozart half his yearly salary with the Archbishop for one. But the Archbishop wasn't going to let Mozart get this opportunity, not only get a big payday, but also to perform in front of the Emperor. He didn't want this, he didn't want this to happen. And, and, you know, with good reason, because Mozart was looking for a way out. So, as you can imagine, Mozart is not happy about this at all. Not a happy chappy. However, luckily for him, right, a bunch of other nobles, they come to the Archbishop and go, what's going on, mate? Who'd you got that Mozart fellow? He wrote that opera, Idemonimena, uh, whatever it is, and premiered in Mu- uh, Munich. Heard fantastic things about that. Isn't he supposed to be super gifted kid? Mate, we want to hear him. What's going on? And so the Archbishop, all these nobles are coming to him saying, oh, let him play, let him play. We want to see him, we want to hear him, right? And he goes, oh, bloody hell, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get out of this one. And so because... These other nobles, you know, weren't happy about Mozart being kept under lock and key like this. They wanted to hear him perform. The Archbishop caved. He gave in and he allowed Mozart to take part in some concerts in Vienna. He obviously fell victim to peer pressure, thankfully, for Mozart. Um, Although he didn't let Mozart play in these big ones that were going to make him the big bucks, unfortunately, because, again, you know, he doesn't doesn't want Mozart, Mozart getting poached. But... Mozart did get the opportunity to perform in Vienna, and things uh, went quite well from there. It was very well received. However, the relationship between him and the Archbishop, obviously, as you might expect, became very strained at this point. The two of them are not getting on. The Archbishop recognises that Mozart wants to get out from under his thumb. Mozart is doing everything he can to try to make connections and impress people in Vienna. And the two of them, obviously, I mean, it all come guts, obviously, because the two of them were, were, were heading towards conflict. And in May, eventually... Mozart tried to resign. He, he offered his resignation to the Archbishop, and the Archbishop refused it. He refused to accept the resignation. He said, no, Mozart, you're going to continue to work for me, old son, so don't even worry about it. But Mozart, adamant that he didn't want to work for the Archbishop uh, anymore, he tried again the next month in June. He tried again, offered his re- resignation, insisting that he, he wanted to quit. And this time, the Archbishop, who at this point just seems tired of dealing with Mozart, who is obviously becoming you know more and more of a pain in the ass to deal with, is he's just determined not to work for the Archbishop anymore. Uh, the the Archbishop accepted the resignation, but not in a particularly nice way. Mozart was kicked out of the Archbishop's retinue. And when I say kicked out, I don't just mean he was removed. I mean he was actually, literally kicked out. The story goes that the Archbishop's steward, as Mozart was leaving, came up behind him and gave him a great big kick up the ass as he left, right? Just to really ram the point home that he wasn't welcome with the Archbishop. But kicked or you know, kick up the bum or no, 
didn't matter. Mozart was free. He was free from the Archbishop and he decided to stay behind in Vienna as a freelance musician. He didn't have a patron, he didn't have a court to work for, but he'd been so well received in Vienna, he'd made so many contacts and the money was coming in, he decided he was going to make it as a freelancer. Now, his dad did not like this at all. Leopold, you know, had brought Mozart up in the hopes that he would get some sort of lucrative fancy court position. He wanted him to make up with the archbishop, stay in the employ with a regular income. But Mozart said, no, stick it up, you bum old man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work as a freelancer in Vienna. And the relationship between him and his father was a little strained from then afterwards. A little bit of tension between the two of them. Although they remain in constant correspondence, they constantly wrote to each other, and there seemed to be a, a decent deal of, you know, um, paternal and filial affection. But on a, on a more professional level, I guess, because, you know, the, Leopold brought Mozart up to have the career that he wanted him to have, and there, there was always... And there's still debate today as to Leopold's role in Mozart's life, whether he was a tyrant, controlling, you know, trying to... Uh, micromanage and, and and fuss over everything that Mozart did, or whether he was just a doting father that was attempting to make sure that his you know son, who was a little bit irresponsible and made some pretty rash decisions here and there, was kept on the straight and narrow. So the debate rages on, but anyway, you slice it. Uh, Leopold not happy with the, the decision his son's made, but it was huge for Mozart, absolutely massive, an enormous step forward in his career, as you'll see. Not only has he got under, out from under the thumb of the Archbishop, he's now also finally standing up to the influence of his father, and he's doing what he wants, living the high life in Vienna. Now, in Vienna, he's having a great time. He's a free agent, had a fair bit of success. He's quickly established himself as as just the finest keyboard player in the whole bloody city. He's entertaining everyone from uh, from Joseph II all the way down to the you know the the, the common the common unwashed people. Uh, with his incredible skill at the at the piano. Now, Joseph II did fall short of employing Mozart properly. Uh, in later years, he did offer um, Mozart some part-time work. We'll come to that. And he commissioned a couple of works here and there of Mozart. But, you know, Mozart didn't get the position with the emperor that he wanted. But this didn't seem to matter too much because the, the work was still coming in, right? Work was still coming in. The performances are going well. He premiered more opera to great acclaim. He's performing throughout the city at different concert halls, whatever else, and generally had a, just a ton of success with the music that he's writing at the, uh, at, at the, at the time. But also, not just the music. It's important to notice, uh, important to note that at this point in his life, He's having some success in other areas because during the conflict that he was having with the Archbishop, when things were very strained, obviously, you know, maybe he didn't feel comfortable staying with the Archbishop's retinue or maybe he didn't like the conditions, whatever else. But at one point, while he's blowing with the Archbishop, he left the Archbishop's uh, household, I guess, or retinue, whatever else, and went and stayed somewhere else. And you'll never guess who he ended up moving in with. Remember last week we talked about the Weber family? Well... Mozart had given uh, Aloysia Weber singing lessons and had fallen in love with her. You remember that. Uh, but then she became a big, a big shot singer and mar- ended up marrying an actor, so that fell through. But the Webers had moved from Mannheim to Vienna in the interim period and took Mozart in when he was blowing with the Archbishop. He needed a place to stay, and the Webers were like, mate, don't worry about it, come and stay with us, no, no dramas at all. Well... This time around, I mean, Aloysia, she's, she's married. That, that ship has sailed. But this time around, while staying with the Weber's, Mozart has his eye on another one of the daughters, Constance, right? And this romance between Mozart and this sister ended up going a lot bloody better than the one with Aloysia, so much so that he ended up marrying her in 1782. Now, you know... There was some resistance to the idea of this marriage. You'll never guess from who. Leopold, you know, was writing to Mozart saying, don't do this, it's a bad move for you. But 
Mozart was adamant. Again, he's freed himself from the influence of his father to a, to a great extent. And uh, Mozart and Constance, they were married no matter what, all the same, you know, father's uh, approval or no, in 1782. He eventually did, you know, give his blessing to the wedding. So it wasn't too bad. There wasn't like a huge rift between the two of them, but still a bit of tension, as I say. So he's married and they remained together all the way through to Mozart's death. They had six children together, although, you know, very sadly and not unusually for the time, only two of the six children survived uh, survived childhood. But uh, 1782, obviously the year of his marriage, the year that things really took off from Vienna, but also an important year for Mozart in another respect, because it was in this year that he wrote a piece of music that I'm sure fans of this podcast, half Ass History, will be fascinated to learn more about. Uh, he wrote a canon in B-flat major. You can find it in the, in the, uh, the Köchel catalogue, uh, number 382C. We're using the sixth edition today. And this piece is more affectionately nicknamed Leck mich im Arsch. As I'm sure any uh, German-speaking fans of the show are aware, Lech mich im Arsch is not... It is not a particularly polite phrase. Um, it literally translates to... If you translate it literally, it means... And we've got some, you know, we've got some rudy-nudy language coming up, so if there are kids listening, well, you know, I've warned you. Um, it literally translates to lick me in the ass. And this isn't how you would actually translate it. If you were if you were translating from German to English, you would translate it more figuratively. It, it, it means kiss my ass, basically, you know, a sort of dismissive phrase, the quite the, you know, kind of rudely dismisses someone. Um, that's how it'd be used in German in that, in that context. Not, but you know, still not hugely polite, even if the English translation is a, is a little less um, graphic. But the reason I want to talk about this. Uh, this piece of music uh, is because, you know, as I hinted last week, Mozart absolutely loved toilet humour. It is an indisputable fact. His letters, even some of his music, are full of talk about bums and poos and farts and, and everything, right? It's fantastic. For instance, one of the letters that he sent a cousin in 1777 had the very evocative phrase. Are you ready for this one? I wish you good night, my dear, but first... Shit in your bed and make it burst. The, I mean, this this bloke had one of the most sublime and incredible artistic talents that the world has ever seen. And that's the stuff that he's writing letters about. I, I can't get enough of this bloke, Mozart. What a fantastic fella. This is just, I mean, we're scratching the surface here, right? He wrote so many pieces of music that had all these, you know, little, well, not even little sometimes, sometimes very overt, but sometimes subtle, you know, scatological reference, talks about, you know, farts and toilets and, and asses and all that sort of stuff. Um, there, there, there were lots of these very serious sounding choral compositions like the one we've just heard that were also about, you know, asses and cheating and all the rest of it. Not only is there Lech Mishamash from 1782, there's Bonanox from 1788, which actually put the the phrase from his letters to music, right? The good night, like the, the lyrics of this song are "Good night, good night, shit in your bed and make it burst, good night, sleep tight, and stick your ass in your mouth." And all of this from one of the most sublimely gifted artistic minds that the world has ever seen. My favorite, however, my absolute favorite. This one is so good. Are you ready? 
My favourite piece of music or scatological music that, that, that Mozart wrote, it's a piece that he wrote sometime between 1786 and 1787, so a period later on that we're going to come to here, but we're jumping ahead just to talk about this piece. It's called Difficile Lectu. It's another canon. Canons, uh, uh, a canon is a, a piece of music where, uh, like a round, where there are parts that are repeated at, at intervals by different, uh, you know, by different singers or instruments or whatever else. And it's a very serious and a very sort of highbrow um, uh, form of music back then, obviously closely associated with church music. And it's something that is, is, is seen as, you know, as a very uh, refined genre of, of, of music, even, you know, I mean, at the time and even today. So... Him writing canons that were all about, you know, Rudy Nudy bits is, is, is brilliant as it is. But this one is particularly, is particularly excellent because Difficile Lectu, it, it is written in Latin, but the lyrics are all nonsense. It's just, it's just random Latin, it's just word salad, random Latin words put together, right? But it sounds, obviously, you listen to it, oh, it sounds like an old sort of, you know, choral composition, beautiful old bit of church music or something because it's all in Latin and whatever else. But... It is nonsense, but it is nonsense with a very specific purpose. Mozart wrote this canon for someone specific to perform it, right? Uh, a, a, the famous tenor baritone, Johann Nepo, Nepomuk Pale, right? And this bloke was, uh, he was known for his very strong Bavarian accent. And anyone who knows anything about the German language will know that uh, Bavarian German is... I mean, calling it German is maybe a little bit generous. You know, sometimes you'll meet someone from Scotland and they are technically speaking English, but you just cannot understand a single thing that they're saying. Bavarian in many ways is a lot like that. The accent is so thick and so incomprehensible to even, you know, native German speakers sometimes. So this bloke, Pyle, right? One night they're uh, they're hanging out, Mozart, Pyle, bunch of their mates, right? Sitting around a piano, you know, just, just mucking around, having a good time. And Mozart says to Pyle, "Listen, I've written you this. Uh, I've written you this beautiful piece of music, beautiful Canadies. It's in Latin, and I'd love you to sing it for us." Now, I don't know if Pyle was suspicious. I will tell you this: Mozart have, had a great love of practical jokes. He was an absolute japester. He did love to really, you know, have a lend of his friends, and there were many of his mates who he was constantly, uh, you know, uh, making fun of or trying to pull pranks and that sort of stuff. So I don't know if Pyle was suspicious or not. But certainly some of the people in the room were about to have a great hoot and a holler when they found out what Mozart had done. Because he hands uh, Pyle this, this, you know, this music that he'd written, this Difficile Lectu. And obviously Pyle, he has a look at it, okay, okay, starts, starts, starts to have a, have a bit of a sing of it, starts to you know, have a crack at this piece of music that his good friend Mozart had written for him. But when he started to sing the lyrics, right, the, the, one of the phrases in the song is uh, Difficile lectu mihi mas er et ionicu difficile, right? And when he started singing Difficile lectu mihi mas, well, lectu mihi mas, it ended up sounding a lot like lectu mich im Arsch when a Bavarian started singing it. Have a listen. So he's just tricked Pyle, right, into singing this vulgar song. Everyone else in the room absolutely howling, slapping their knees. They can't believe it. Mozart's done it again. What a bloody legend, right? Pyle, he's fell for it. He's singing Lick Me in the Ass for everyone. And, you know, what the thing that I just I love so much about Mozart's scatology is that there are people even today, all these 
posh people, they get dressed up, they go to these concerts, they sit there bloody closing their eyes, nodding their heads, going, oh, sublime, wonderful, magical, all that sort of stuff. These pretentious knobs who think that Mozart's like, you know, this wonderfully refined cultural legend. And he's here bloody tricking people into singing about bums and whatever. Oh, it's just it's so, it's just so good. It's so good. You know, people admiring the the serene, transcendental purity of his music. And he's hiding toilet humour in his songs. Absolutely brilliant. There's there's another joke as well. In, in there's another hidden um bilingual pun in Difficile Lectu. Um there's a bit, have a listen to this, there's a bit where you sing the Latin word Yoniku over and over again, right? Have a listen. But this one, uh, rather than for the German-speaking audience, is for the Italian-speaking audience because you might recognise once you start saying Yoniku, Yoniku, Yoniku over the over and over again, it sounds like you're saying Cuyoni, 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 which in Italian means testicles. So not only has Pyle started singing, you know, lick me in the ass, he then starts singing testicles, testicles, testicles over and over again. I mean, I'm on board. Transcendental. Absolutely sublime. This bloke was a genius. By all accounts, Mozart had an absolutely puerile, completely childish sense of humour when it came to, you know, talking about, again, shit and farts and asses and all the rest of it. So I'd like to think... I'd like to think, and maybe this is a little self-indulgent, but I would like to think that were Mozart around today, I'd like to think that he wouldn't mind listening to half Ass history. I do feel like he would, you know, he would be amongst uh, amongst family listening to this podcast, wouldn't he? Anyway, good on you, Mozart, old mate. You might be the you know the favourite composer of stuck-up posh wankers around the world, but at least you knew how to enjoy a bit of good old-fashioned toilet humour here and there. Anyway. Even between writing true masterpieces like Lech Mishimash, Mozart still found the time to develop and learn and constantly challenge himself to become a better composer. He studied other hugely famous and influential composers from the past. Uh, And as we move from 1782 to 1783, Mozart, he's engrossing himself in the works of George Frederick Handel, Johann Sebastian Bach, right? Uh, Don't forget, he'd been tutored as a kid by Bach's child. And so he spent a lot of time studying these Baroque masters, had a very strong influence on his on his compositional language, on his writing. And uh, uh, there was another thing as well that that really helped him develop as a as a composer to a greater extent. That he, you know his mastery was already incredible, but he he was only getting better and better. And in 1784, he struck up a friendship with none other than Joseph Haydn. You might have heard of Haydn, another enormously important classical composer, largely considered the father of the of the string quartet. And uh, Haydn's compositions, in in some respects, almost as famous as Mozart. Still, obviously, these days, Haydn does largely live in Mozart's shadow. But at the time, Haydn was definitely the better-known composer. He was 23 years older than Mozart, had a very well-established career. Um, But the two blokes, they were thick as thieves. They wrote and performed music together. Haydn, obviously being well-established, highly respected, um, was uh, you know as a as a I guess an advocate for Mozart. It was uh, it was a great thing for the young man's career because it's a huge stamp of approval to have someone like Haydn uh, backing you. Even even though today obviously Mozart is much more famous than Haydn. Back then, Haydn recognizing Mozart's genius, his talent, uh, lavishing him with praise. I mean, you know, we talk about the tension between. Uh, Leopold and Mozart, the fact that, you know, his dad, uh, Leopold didn't really approve of his lifestyle in Vienna. When he came to visit one time in 1785, Haydn actually personally told Leopold, this is what he said, 
Your son is the greatest composer known to me by person and repute. He has taste, and what more, he has the greatest skill in composition. So this is high praise coming from a very, very well-respected composer, and it, it did something to actually sort of, you know, assuage some of Leopold's doubts about what his son was up to, given the fact that he was, you know, running with the big dogs like Haydn. And, and the friendship between Mozart and Haydn has been very well documented. There's a lot to get into. It's quite fascinating. But suffice to say that these two blokes were big fans of each other. Uh, Mozart wrote a, 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 a suite of string quartets that he dedicated to Haydn. And uh, their parting was uh, a very, very sorrowful one. When Haydn left to to go and, and live in England, uh, you know, they said goodbye in Vienna and, and they, were, they were both very, very upset to have to say goodbye to each other. They were just, as I say, the thickest thieves, big, big fans of each other. And uh, and they were sorry to say goodbye to one another. But, you know, all the same had a big influence on each other. And um, it was during this period, actually, when Mozart was was mates with Haydn, when he was studying the old Baroque masters. It's when he wrote some of his, his greatest and most famous works. And some of these I'm sure you'll recognize. For example, in 1783, he wrote his piano sonata number 11, uh, K. 300i, uh, particularly famous for its third movement known as Rondo alla Turca. Other works, such as his famous piano concerto number 21 in C major, K467, were, you know, just as famous, just as well received back then as they are today. Number 21 uh, is these days known as Elvira Madigan, due to it being used in a 1967 film of the same name. Um, And it was one of many piano concertos that Mozart wrote between late 1784 and and early 1785. And one one of the things that's really important about these piano concertos is that Mozart performed them himself personally he premiered them in Vienna uh, in front of rapturous audiences his piano concertos were were revolutionary he was redefining the genre and when he gave these performances so many people were clamoring to see you know music develop before their very eyes for the very ears I guess um, so many people wanted to see him perform that he had to start booking larger venues. The the, the usual concert halls and the theatres that, that you'd use for a thing like that, they were too small. They were they were packed. There were, there were people out the door who couldn't get in to hear him play. And so instead, he took the unconventional step of performing these, these, uh, these concertos for the first time in ballrooms, in large halls, in apartment buildings. People flocked to hear him perform his latest works. It may not sound all that different to us these days, but Mozart's work was transformational. It was, as I say, he was changing entire genres of music in the same way that a band like I don't know the Beatles changed Western music forever in the last hundred, you know, within the last century. So too did Mozart, almost two hundred years previous. Although you know there were probably weren't as many screaming girls at Mozart's concerts, but perhaps you can imagine Mozart filling these these ballrooms, grand, big, opulent settings with people all clamouring to hear his latest work, sitting down in March seventeen eighty five and watching Mozart himself sit down at the piano and begin to play. Now, As you probably guessed, and very happily, 
Mozart's success in Vienna finally saw him start to earn quite substantial amounts of money for himself. He'd never really been living in poverty, but he'd never amassed much of a fortune for himself either by the same token. But now, as he begins to uh, get, you know, get closer and closer to his 30th birthday, the money is rolling in. And he was able to keep his, himself and his family in a, uh, in a much more comfortable living situation, sort of. They moved into a fancy apartment. They hired servants. They sent their son, Carl Thomas, to an expensive boarding school. Mozart even splashed out and bought himself a very nice piano. His piano cost twice his yearly rent. So he did buy a, a very, very fancy piece of machinery there. But, you know, the reason that I'm sort of talking about all this hesitantly is that Mozart really was just terrible with money. He he lived so he lived way beyond his means. He spent irresponsibly and unsustainably. He thought that, you know, as he was rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous, he had to maintain a certain lifestyle, certain appearances, so his 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 finances they weren't very well managed at all. But with the money coming in from his compositions, from his performances, all the rest of it, you know, he he didn't fall into poverty. He wasn't destitute and he was able to kind of keep this more lavish lifestyle going for him and his family. And of course, I don't need to say this, he was still writing music at just a prodigious rate, just so much music. He, he focused principally on writing and performing uh, piano music, churning out new works constantly, as you'd expect, he just didn't stop. Um, to give you a sense of how much music he wrote, between his dismissal from the Archbishop in 1781 and his 30th birthday in early 1786, he wrote well over 100 pieces of music, roughly, you know, again, a new one every two weeks. But in 1786, the year that he turned 30, and the reason I'm talking about this year a bit more specifically, is because at this point he, he sort of shifted direction a little bit. There was a change in... Uh, he, he, well, he returned to a, a genre of music that he kind of left by the wayside for a little bit. Um, you know, he'd been focusing, as I say, on piano music. But in 1786, he turned his attention once again back to opera. And uh, it was in the same year that he premiered the extremely famous Marriage of Figaro, K492. And it's another work that you might recognize. The Marriage of Figaro is generally considered one of the best operas ever written, and even today, it's immensely famous. It premiered in Vienna on the 1st of May, 1786. Mozart himself conducted the orchestra, and it was so well received that on the, on the opening night, they had five encores because people just wouldn't stop applauding. And he did it the next year. 1787 was a huge year for Mozart for many reasons. Uh, one of them was the fact that his uh, his latest, his next opera, Don Giovanni, K527, was an absolute masterpiece, an absolute banger it was. Uh, even today, once again, same as Marriage of Figaro, considered one of the best operas ever written. This one premiered in Prague, not in Vienna, uh, while Mozart was travelling there. And once again, lavished with praise and acclaim. And Mozart, again, really, he is riding high, loving life. And I say, as I say, 1787, a huge year for the young bloke. On top of Don Giovanni and a, and a couple of other things that we'll come to in a moment, he also composed what is probably his most famous piece of work and potentially, I think you could make an argue, argument for this, the most famous piece of classical music ever written. It is a bold 
and it is a contentious claim, certainly up for debate. I mean, I know there are going to people who are going to say stuff like the Brandenburg Concerto, the 1812 Overture, Fur Elise. Uh, I mean, there are going to be so many other pieces of music that, that people argue is, is the greatest composition of all time. But this one, I would argue that if you just ask, you know, if you just ask a random person on the street, name a bit of classical music, any just any piece of classical music, go, right? Maybe even even if they couldn't tell you the name of it, they would go, oh, uh, I don't know, the one that goes, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what it's called, but I guess that one there, whatever it is. Well, what it is is Mozart's Serenade Number no. Thirteen for strings in G Major K two five two, but it is better known to the world, of course, as Eine kleine Nachtmusik in English, a little night music. This has to be one of the most famous and one of the most instantly recognisable pieces of music ever written. It is something that I would stake a a fair bit of money that every person listening to this podcast has at least heard or heard of. Even if you didn't know Mozart wrote it, even if you didn't know it was called Eine kleine Nachtmusik, you will have heard this piece of music. I mean, it's used in you know, audiovisual media to establish a setting, a mood or a scene as being posh or snobby or rich. It's used as backdrops for as musical backgrounds in you know a fancy dinner or garden party it is ubiquitous to the point that it it is overplayed it is it it is the piece of classical music but here is the best thing about Eine kleine Nachtmusik here is the the, the the absolutely fascinating thing about this piece of music it wasn't famous or popular or even heard of in Mozart's lifetime he wrote it, it's thought, as an afterthought, as just a one of those little bits of music that he was constantly scribbling away at, just another little composition that was sort of written and fell by the wayside. It might have been a private commission. We haven't we don't know this for certain, but it, it might have been, you know, commissioned privately from someone and then premiered and performed privately for that person. Although, you know, again, we don't know that for sure. But we do know that it was never popular during Mozart's lifetime. In fact, it was may never have been publicly performed as it wasn't published until 1827, years after his death, right? So one of the most famous and enduring pieces of classical music ever written was something that Mozart might have just sort of, you know, thrown together one afternoon when, I don't know, maybe he was just a bit bored, just another piece of music and it is turned into one of the most famous and enduring pieces of classical music ever written. And for Mozart, it was Tuesday. So such is the absolute genius of this bloke. Another interesting thing that happened in 1787, it was the year that young Ludwig van Beethoven was also in Vienna. He, uh, he came to Vienna to seek out Mozart. He wanted Mozart to tutor him in music. Now, unfortunately, There are no reliable historical sources that indicate that the two ever met. Mozart uh, was enormously admired by Beethoven. Um, Beethoven travelled to Vienna at the age of 17 to try to meet him and to try to, you know, persuade him to become his teacher. But while there are claims, there are some claims that people have made that the two of them did meet, the broad consensus seems to be they probably didn't. And Beethoven didn't stick around in Vienna for too long, only a couple of weeks. Uh, so that the two, they probably never crossed paths. Uh, Beethoven obviously would go on to have a musical career that was just as legendary, as influence, influential as Mozart's. Um, and Mozart had a strong influence on Beethoven's music, but um, they probably didn't meet. 
as cool as as cool a story as it would have been, they probably never met. Um, and but independent of the fact that they'd never met, Beethoven went on to have a career that I would say rivals, or you know, depending on how you look at it, perhaps outstrips um, Mozart's as a, a, a massively influential uh, classical composer. Certainly, you know, there's no debating that they're on they're on that upper echelon, that higher tier of classical composers, the two of them. However, I'm sorry to say that 1787 wasn't all good times for uh, for Mozart because it was in this year as well that his father Leopold finally passed away. In May, at the age of 67, Leopold Mozart died. And this makes what else happened in 1787 all the more tragic. In December of that year, Mozart finally, after so many years, he finally received employment at the imperial court. And his father wasn't around to see it. Leopold has spent his entire life attempting to get a position like this for his son. And it was only after his death that, uh, you know, Mozart was able to find the employment that his father had been seeking for him all these years at an imperial court. Leopold was, he was a hard and he was a demanding father. And music historians are still split on his exact role in Mozart's life, as I said before. On the one hand, he gave Mozart the education and support he needed to succeed as a musician and as a composer. But on the other, he was harsh and tyrannical. And even when Mozart moved away to Vienna, Leopold still attempted to manage much of his life. Now, as I said before, maybe this was the best thing for Mozart, as he wasn't a particularly responsible bloke when it came to, as we say, for instance managing his finances. So the debate continues as to Leopold Mozart's exact relationship. Leopold, you know, didn't like Mozart living in Vienna, but then again after visiting in 1785 and meeting Haydn, who don't forget lavished praise on Mozart, Leopold seemed to come around to the idea a little bit and they wrote back and forth constantly. But there was always some tension between father and son right up to Leopold's death in 1787. So it is Another fascinating relationship that Mozart had and, and something that people still unpick to this very day. And, and Leopold is a controversial figure in the history of music and, and in Mozart's history. And people still debate his exact role in his son's life even today. Anyway, as I say, the final thing that happened in 1787 for Mozart that was huge news, he did finally get this imperial appointment that he sought, although it was just part-time. It wasn't a full-time position uh, and it didn't attract a huge salary, just a bit of a, just a, bit of a side hustle for Mozart there. But... The duties were light, just had to write a couple of pieces, you know, a few dances and uh, all that sort of thing, you know, every now and again. And the money was most welcome, uh, particularly in the coming years, because as I mentioned, Mozart, he didn't manage his money all that well. And this came back to bite him on the ass a little bit towards the end of the 1780s as times began to get tough. In 1788, the Austro-Turkish War broke out. Now, this was not good news, uh, not just for Mozart, but for, I mean, Austrian musicians, performers, composers, and, and artists of all kinds, because the conflict took, took people's attention away from the arts. And, you know, more importantly for Mozart, it took the aristocracy's money away from the arts. The aristocracy was spending their money on war and not on music. This meant fewer commissions, fewer performances, and a lot less money flying around in general. And in turn, that meant that Mozart and his family, they had to curtail their expenditures. They had to cut down on what they on the silly money they were, you know, chucking around. They moved out of their expensive apartment. They moved to a suburb a suburb of Vienna. And ultimately, Mozart, because of the, the, the general turndown in work, he was forced to resort to borrowing money off of his friends to make ends meet. And this 
change in circumstance for Mozart. You know, the bloke who had gone from giving you know these incredible recitals of his piano concertos in front of packed audiences, conducting operas that were given rapturous standing ovations, five encores. Right, this bloke it hit him pretty hard. It 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 seems to have you know caused him to spiral into depression a little bit because for the first time since he started composing, Mozart's musical output slowed quite significantly. From 1788 to 1790, there was a decrease in his prolific composing, although it has to be said, some of the pieces that he did compose during this time, I mean, even if there were less, the quality of the ones that he did write were, were not diminished, and some of them were affected by his headspace here. And one of the most famous pieces of music that he composed during this period, uh, it went on to become very famous, an instant classic. It's his Symphony No. 40 in G minor, K550. But despite writing masterpieces like this symphony, Mozart was still in a, in a pretty bad spot during this period, and, and so he sought to improve his fortunes with an old trick from his youth. He hit the road. He went on a journey. He travelled to seek his fortune. From Vienna, he travelled to Prague, Dresden, Leipzig, and Berlin, and ultimately performed, uh, he performed in front of the King of Prussia, Frederick William II, who was the nephew of Frederick the Great, episode one, Get Across It. And Frederick William commissioned a series of string quartets and piano sonatas off Mozart. But aside from this, the uh, the trip didn't really seem to bring him the financial success that he was hoping for. But then, then again, when you think about it, all the trips he did when he was younger didn't either. So I don't know what he was hoping for. But look, I don't know. Got him back on the road. Got him performing, traveling, all that sort of stuff again. In any case, he returned to Vienna after having been on the road for just a, just a couple of months. And apart from a few smaller trips to other German cities in, in 1790... He remained in Vienna for the rest of his life afterwards. And I'm very sorry to say that that wasn't a very long time at all. In 1791, things did begin to improve for Mozart on many fronts. The last few years had hit him very hard. He hadn't been in a good place professionally or personally. But in 1791, things started to turn around a little bit. He got back into composing in a big way. He wrote famous works like his opera, The Magic Flute. He had more money come in. Uh, as well, thanks to the success of some of the dance music that he'd written. And uh, he was able to pay off many of his debts. He greatly enjoyed premiering and performing, uh, you know, these these new highly acclaimed works like The Magic Flute. You know, The, the Magic Flute in particular was <clears throat> a huge success as an opera. But even with all of this, tragically, Mozart didn't live the year out. And he was dead before the end of 1791, aged just 35. Now, what happened to him? I'm sure you want to know. And the truth of the matter is that even today, we're just not completely sure. And historians still argue about it. Even the lead up to his death, there are, there are, there's controversy. There are arguments about exactly where he was at, about his physical and mental health uh, in, in the time uh, ahead of his, his, his death. Um, the traditional story is that he was in a slow but steady decline towards the end of, of 1791, uh, and he claimed to his wife that he was sure that he was being poisoned. 
But more recently, this theory has lost a lot of favour amongst historians who cite the letters that he wrote in late 1791 as showing Mozart to be in very good spirits and filled with energy. So why has there been this persistent misconception about the, the time leading up to his death? Well, because it was a very good story. It made for a good story. Around the time of his death, Mozart was working on a monumental piece of music, a Catholic Requiem Mass, basically a huge and advanced and very complex choral work that is used to commemorate death. Mozart's early biographers claim that he knew he was writing this requiem for himself and that he put his final life's energy into the piece. And that, plus the claim of poisoning, which added intrigue to the story, ends up with a highly romanticised and, you know, potentially largely fictionalised account of the death of one of the most famous artists in, in human history. You might have heard the story about the poisoning. There's a lot of nonsense about the Italian composer Antonio Salieri allegedly poisoning, Mo- poisoning Mozart for Salieri's own personal gain. This was a rumour even back then in 1791. There was talk that Salieri had done this, um, but it, it took the rumours took on a new life after playwright Peter Schaffer wrote his absolutely ridiculous play Amadeus, supposedly about Mozart's time in Vienna. Amadeus was made into a film in 1984, and it is terrible. It is completely fictionalised. Uh, it shows Salieri and Mozart as these hated rivals, which is just, it's all nonsense. Salieri and Mozart were at absolute worst professional rivals who, you know, competed for the emperor's favour. Favor. There was definitely no murderous plot between them, and the bad blood certainly didn't extend to the, 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 the way that the film portrays the two of them. They even collaborated on music together. They worked together. So the play and the film just made up rubbish. Salieri in these films, by the way, I mean, if you're wondering how ridiculous it is, in the film, Salieri is portrayed as this weird loner with a vow of chastity, uh, whereas in real life, he had a wife and eight children, so not very chaste. And on top of that, he had a mistress as well, just for good measure. Um, it just, it really irks me to no end that films like Amadeus twist people's perceptions of historical truth. The film uh, today, it's considered a masterpiece. Obviously, it's won awards and, and people think it's fantastic. But I mean, I can't stand it. It's it's in the same category as Braveheart. It is a piece of of, of, of fiction, more or less, that 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 twists the popular perception or the popular understanding of historical truth. And for that reason, I think it does a lot of damage to the discipline and the, and, and the science of history. Uh, it, it, it does bother me a lot that stuff like this exists, particularly with Amadeus, because if you look at the if you look, if you look up the, the promotional poster for the film, it has the words, "Everything you've heard is true printed on it. So an absolute schmozzle. And Salieri, I mean, Salieri didn't poison him, although even at the time, before the nonsense with Schaffer's uh, play and film, um, people thought that Salieri may have had a hand in Mozart's death, which probably contributed to poor Salieri having a nervous breakdown many years later. Um, But the fact of the matter is, Mozart probably wasn't poisoned at all. Can't be ruled out definitively, but, you know, it's largely the the romanticisation of Mozart's death that that gets in the way of... uh, of knowing the truth. And it's not just that. There's also a lack of real tangible evidence as to what actually did happen. I can tell you what we know. Around the end of November 1791, Mozart fell ill, very ill. He was bedridden. 
He was racked with pain, spewing all over the place, spewing his guts up, uh, having an absolutely terrible time. And of course, it only got worse from there, unfortunately, because he, I mean, Mozart, he was seen to by a doctor, but his condition deteriorated as he tried to finish his requiem. And finally, tragically, on the 5th of December, 1791, Mozart finally died. His requiem remained unfinished and his life was cut tragically short. He was just 35 years old. He probably died of an illness, although what the illness was, we, we don't know. It was recorded as a severe miliary fever, referring to the, the way that the rashes that he had looked when he died. And look, Mozart wasn't a particularly healthy bloke. Um, throughout his lifetime, he'd suffered from all sorts of diseases and illnesses, smallpox, typhoid fever, pneumonia, bronchitis, tonsillitis, all sorts of other illnesses as well. And we don't know if these maladies contributed to his death, but, you know, it's certainly not out of the question. But look, right through to the present day, people are still, they're still arguing about what Mozart died of and suggesting things that might have killed him. A subdural hematoma, perhaps, might have been trichinosis, or who knows, even a, an acute nephritic syndrome caused by post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. Who knows? Whatever that is. The fact of the matter is, we don't know. We don't know. We know that Mozart wasn't well, and we know that he was that unwell that he died, the poor bastard, but... We don't know what it was that ultimately killed him. You might have heard after his death that Mozart was buried in a common grave. And, you know, you might think, what a great indignity for for this great man. But it wasn't the indignity that you might think it was. It wasn't a shared grave. It was just a grave for commoners, a common grave for a commoner. Um, And the difference between a commoner's grave and a grave for the aristocracy is that a commoner's grave could be dug up again after 10 years. Very normal for the time. Um, and while, yes, his funeral was a subdued affair, uh, the many memorial services that were held for him were very well attended. And it's not like people forgot about him overnight just because he died. In fact, it was the opposite. His music flourished with his death. And it's usually the case with a famous artist, a famous artist, isn't it? People were more interested in the, than ever in the music that he'd written. And in the coming years, people wrote biographies of him to cash in. Uh, and not all these biographers were particularly well-sourced. In fact, much of the romanticization of Mozart's life, and indeed his death, came from works like these, these biographies that were kind of churned out. So it's not always easy to pick apart the truth from the fiction. Whatever the circumstances, however, that was the end of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, taken from this world far too soon, with an unfinished requiem, and who knows how many hundreds of pieces of music forever unwritten. But even with his short life, the influence that he has had on Western music, I mean, as I mentioned, it is essentially impossible to understate. Countless composers after him, after him, towering musical figures like Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, so many more, were all heavily influenced by Mozart and his work. Why? Mozart changed the way music was written with his compositions. He changed the way it was performed. He opened people's eyes to what was possible across a ton of different genres. His operas were ridiculously complex. They advanced the genre enormously. His symphonies pushed the boundaries of what was possible with an orchestra, with new instruments, filled with ideas and musical devices that were unheard of. It's difficult to put it in layman's terms. I mean, I don't really understand it myself, but the crux of it is this. Mozart was a truly revolutionary composer and musician. And he forever changed the way that the Western world listened to and composed music. Today, 
when we listen to Lady Gaga and, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, it doesn't sound too much like Mozart. But his musical and compositional style was instrumental in advancing Western music. And, and, and future revolutionary composers, the best example being Beethoven, who straddles the classical and romantic periods, would be led to develop Western music even further by Mozart and his work. So the next time that you pop on your headphones on the way to work and you enjoy a bit of Ed Sheeran, think of Mozart and think of the revolutionary and unbelievably prolific composing that he did throughout his short life to help get Western music to where it is today. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story, finally, of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Bit of a long one, but I'm glad we got across it all over the last two episodes, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. We'll do the quick housekeeping nonsense now at the end to wrap up the show because it has gone on for a little bit. Uh, Halfhousehistory.net, uh, contact form there if you want to suggest anything, any other suggestions. I did really enjoy the, uh, doing this one on Mozart, so if you've got something similar like that in a similar kind of vein, do let me know, uh, especially if it involves any kind of scatology, because you know I'm going to get it, want to get across that. Uh, speaking of scatology, if you wanted to uh, jump over to the merch shop, if you go to bit.ly slash H-A-H merch, you can grab yourself a, a half, an official half Us History toilet T-shirt. Imagine that. Uh, all sorts of other nonsense that you, that you can buy. Not just T-shirts either. You can get mugs and pillows and phone cases and all sorts of stuff there. Go and have a look at that. Uh, and if you want to support the show directly uh, on Patreon, half history, oh, sorry, patreon.com slash half history, get across it, get early access to episodes, uncut episodes, show notes, all sorts of stuff there as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the Patreons for supporting me week in and week out. Good on yous. You're the real MVPs. And that is that. See you back here next week for more nonsense. Until then, leaving you, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Reddit user Quality Salves, who asks... Since classical music often relaxes people and can help them sleep, were audiences at Mozart's concerts just passing out and sleeping through them? (laughs) 